0: The young boy was communicating extensively with this apparition and we were able to track down the only living relative and confirm some of the family stories that were related to him. And yet the other family members had also seen the apparition. So it was not, he was the only one. Uh, That was pretty mind blowing, especially when we asked, does Lois the ghost have any questions for us? And the questions directly related to a conversation we'd had in my car.
1: What the fuck just happened? I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listened to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a science y skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? Hi guys, I'm so excited. Today I am doing a double podcast with Darren McEnany from Seeking Eye And we are talking to Lloyd Arbach, who is one of the first people I met at the start of my research when I was pretty desperate and pretty much assumed this was all not going to be true. And Lloyd made a big difference in helping me in my darkest days and a lot of patience with all my piles of skeptical questions. So I'm going to ask Lloyd some of the questions that I asked him in the beginning that really helped me. And then we're just going to all three have a conversation. So I hope you enjoy. And Lloyd can introduce himself better than I can.
0: Okay. Well, I'm Lloyd Auerbach. I have a a master's in parapsychology. I am the president of the Forever Family Foundation. I'm I'm a vice president of the board of directors of the Ryan Research Center and one of the principal instructors for the Ryan Education Center. I've been in the field for over 42 years now, since the start of my graduate education in parapsychology I run an sort of a loose network called the Office of Paranormal Investigations have done that since 1989 that is an outgrowth of the old graduate parapsychology program at JFK University which unfortunately um, ended in the mid 80s and JFK itself now which is where I got my degree from is has been subsumed by National University as of 2021 I am the author of nine author or co-author of nine paranormal books and one book on self-publishing and also a novel called Near Death, which is a paranormal mystery novel, co-author of that. We have our second novel coming out in a few months, in fact. And on, on top of all that, I am a uh, professional mentalist, psychic entertainer, and former magician, magic starting for me in graduate school. And then I ended up performing, starting perform. So I'm a p- performing mentalist and psychic entertainer these days as well as an occasional chocolatier. So I think that's enough.
1: Yum. (laughs) The chocolates sound really good. Darren, do you want to do a quick intro? I know I've had you on another podcast.
2: Yeah, you you pretty much nailed my name. I'm Darren McKennany. I'm a researcher, lay researcher of consciousness and the possibilities of um, survival after physical death. I've been doing it pretty much since I was 12 years old, which came about as a result of um, an anxiety and depression uh, relating to The Fear of Death. Uh, Since 2018, I've had a small podcast, which I've used to share my research, which includes discussion. I've also had uh, discussions with researchers and and experts. I've also had Lloyd on quite recently, haven't we, Lloyd, really, to discuss paranormal research and things like that. Um, So you can find all of that at um, seeking seeking com. That's letter I. That's pretty much all you really need to know about me, I suppose.
1: So I guess Darren and I will take turns asking Lloyd questions, and Lloyd, I guess- I actually have never asked you this before. When you started researching all of this, what was your thought? Did you always think there was a chance of something, psi abilities or an afterlife?
0: Well, I mean, what got me interested in parapsychology goes back well before my graduate studies. And uh, really, as a little kid, I was influenced by certain TV shows, uh, comic books, science fiction heavily. Really influenced me, and I discovered the books, uh, the science books on parapsychology after going to the library when I was about eleven or twelve, because of the TV show Dark Shadows, the soap opera Dark Shadows, which is probably where I heard the word parapsychology first. I read it in in a super, I think, a Superman comic before that, and because of. Coming at this from mainly science fiction and also being a little science geek as a kid, I was heavily into astronomy and geology. Discovering books by J.B. Ryan and J.G. Pratt and some of the other scientists in the field really put me on the path towards where I am today. Uh, but I I never had any problem accepting that psychic abilities could be real. Uh, and Maybe that's the science fiction fan in me, uh, comic book fan in me. So it was, it was never an issue of it being impossible. I actually had a parapsychology club in high school, started with a couple of the teachers were our physics and earth science teacher were both interested, and they sponsored the club for us. And we got to meet a lot of uh, New York parapsychologists, because I grew li- up outside of New York City.
1: That's very lucky you had that in high school. I wonder if I'd ever been exposed to this as anything more than nonsense, if you know, I mean, losing a parent is never easy or anybody, but I just wonder if I'd been able to have hope in some way before I started delving in, if just the earliest days before finding this would have been easier.
0: Yeah, I I would say probably that is true. I was also fortunate in college in my anthropology studies to have courses offered at, at Northwestern that were looking at supernatural beliefs around the world. So and a professor who, who was assigned as my advisor who had the journal parapsychology on his shelves. So the universe was kind to me.
1: You said you met all these New York parapsychologists. Was there one that you were most excited to meet?
0: At the time, I think I was probably more excited to meet Hans Holzer than anybody else because I'd read all his ghost hunting books growing up. But I think I probably had better discussion with Montague Allman
1: and Gertrude Schmeidler. I'll put those links in the show notes.
2: Did you, did you find much, um, much interest for your, your club in the kind of the academics of the school, the teachers and the professors or however? I don't know how the state schools work over there. but
0: Yeah, we, uh, well, first of all, my high, my, it was a junior-senior high school in a little town called Elmsford, New York, which is in Westchester County. And my graduating class, to give you an idea of the size of the school, was 101 people. So we were one of the smallest public schools in, in the New York state system. So we had 20, 20, I think 22 or 23 members of the Parapsychology Society at one point. And uh, we didn't do any ghost hunting. We did have, did meet with people. You know, Montague Allman was very kind to meet with us. Uh, we did ESP experiments and a few PK experiments, including on a relatively primitive computer, which we were connecting to via modem to the county and teletype. We had a couple of ESP games and, and things we did, and it, it just was, it was a good group. I, I can't say it was terribly academic, and since not everybody was interested in the real academic stuff, but uh, we did mainly focus on ESP and psychokinesis with a little bit on the ghostly thing.
1: Hi, guys. I'm just jumping in here to give you a few definitions, because if you're new to all of this, you might have no idea what we're talking about. So psychokinesis which is also called PK, is mind or energy's ability to affect objects and matter. Examples of PK are spoon bending with your mind, people having objects move with their mind. And this is often shown very exaggerated in movies.
2: What sort of um, ESP games or experiments did you do? And what, what sort of results would you get?
0: So There, there were two, um, two main ones that I programmed. This is back when I learned computer basic. This is going back uh, to ancient times. And one was a very simple, and we did them with cards also, was a simple uh, five symbol, you know, five card type of thing. Generally basic statistics and so on. And the other was hiding that same idea in a kind of a, a basic sci-fi game, where which was somewhat based on an old T- British TV show called UFO. It was a Jerry Anderson show. So I used uh, some of the storyline of that where the, um, the the fighter pilots of Shadow, S-H-A-D-O, which was the organization, had to shoot down an alien. And they had to find it in one of five places. So we, we kind of did the same kind of one in five statistical things. I did it both as uh, precognition and also as just kind of a... Sort of clairvoyance. Kind of hard to do clairvoyance. You don't because you don't. The computer doesn't actually have a symbol, so it's more precognition.
2: Did you ever get any interesting kind of results from it?
0: A few people scored really well. I scored pretty well on on actually did better on the UFO game than I did on the ESP test. And people, some people did fairly well on the card guessing. One of my teachers, a physics teacher who was from India, and had had uh, a couple of experiences growing up. He scored pretty well as well, you know, often when we did it with him.
1: What made you, because a lot of people, especially teenagers, I think, find this interesting. And it's very rare that people actually pursue careers in all of this. What made you go so far with it?
0: No idea. (laughs) (laughs) It's just something that it it seemed to me that it was a mystery that, that we needed to study in science. And one of the things I got, I've gotten, always gotten out of comic books and science fiction is that the potential for human beings is untapped. We, we have potential in many different areas, and we settle, unfortunately, uh, instead of actually ex- exploring that potential. And this is one area that I felt... Since I couldn't get on the Enterprise and and go out into the galaxy, this was the one area that I felt was the final frontier for me.
1: And why do you think it is that humans settle in terms of our abilities?
0: Well, you know, there's societal issues. If you look at the beliefs around what we call psi around the world, which has different terminology and often either in religious context or in supernatural contexts, there are cultural issues as to even what ability makes sense for that culture at that time, and what does not make sense. There's justification within religions. I have a friend of mine who, who, uh, who's a psychic medium who was in a, a very fundamentalist religious group for a long time. Uh, she was able to break away from that, but they used her abilities. This is all supposed to be evil stuff, right? They used her abilities to their advantage. So as long as it was to their advantage, it wasn't satanic. Wasn't evil. And we see this around the world in general. If somebody is doing something that fits in the right context, then it's okay. But it's still, we raise these people up as special. And I think because sometimes the special people insist on being special, that we don't know, we don't acknowledge that everybody has potential for these things. That's one of the things that J.B. Ryan did. He shifted from the special people to looking at at the idea that everybody has some psychic ability and whether or not everyone can do the same thing which is pretty pretty clear it's not the case or how good people get at certain abilities or certain activities psychically also you know it, it just depends on the individual's aptitude it seems kind of like with music and and any art arts that you've got as well and i don't think that you know human beings tend to settle into a nice even life people there's there's people that are explorers, even within their own experience, whether it's physical exploration or mental exploration. And there are people who just like things in a definite way. They want to know that this is how things are. And so they don't question anything. And we're seeing that in the world today quite a bit, that people will accept an authority figure without questioning. And unfortunately, it's just, an, it's just human nature. There's, it just seems that there are explorers and there are people who just live.
2: And it's interesting as well, because in my um, university course on psychology, we've just covered the Milgram experiments, which was the um, Stanley Milgram who, who did various studies to see how, as you say, authority figures influence our behavior. And it is very clear that a, an authoritative figure can really sway one's mind without really them having to question it. So it is a very strong, very strong factor. And you see it a lot online, especially with very popular kind of debunkers or people that are anti this kind of thing like um, the late James Randi and the Michael Shermers and, and various folk like that.
0: Well, and, and really, um, I just got done teaching which Liz took uh, a course on a skeptical approach to parapsychology with, with a skeptic, with Kenny Biddle, who's, who's truly a skeptic. There are what Marcello Truzzi called pseudoskeptics. And I think that a large majority of the outspoken so-called skeptics, they're not skeptics. They are disbelievers. Uh, they are pseudo-skeptics. They use the word skepticism, they use the word skeptic in an incorrect fashion. And they're not any different really than the true believers that accept everything. So at the one end, the disbelievers will accept any of their authority figures that make any statement whatsoever, no matter how absurd. At the other end, you have the true believers who believe anything a a self-professed psychic or guru or someone else says without any question. So we have to be more in the middle
2: yeah, I wonder what what, what are your thoughts on the um, guy that I had the chance to interview recently, Dr. Chris French, who seems to be a very much more the skeptic, kind of the genuine skeptic on this this kind of thing. What, what are your thoughts on his views?
0: Well, I know that Chris finally admitted that parapsychology is a science, verbally and in print, which is interesting considering he's been involved in parapsychology research for a really long time, even as a skeptic. So. Uh, I've seen him, you know, he's he's been, I think, very skeptical uh, in not necessarily a bad way, but often a um, persistent way. Let's put it that way. And, and I'm glad to see that he's at least looking with a slightly different eye at what the research actually is. You know, the reality here is if Psy doesn't exist, there's something else going on. And if there's something else going on... <laughs> We need to know what that is. Unfortunately, the majority of people doing research on any of these experiences are parapsychologists, not skeptics, not debunkers, not the disbelievers. So we're kind of in this little niche where, okay, maybe we're wrong, but we'll only we'll discover that as we do the research. And It would be great if we had more people looking at it.
1: Do you find and do you have any like fun examples of anyone who was really skeptical, who started investigating and changed their mind? And do you notice that most of the time, it's kind of a two-part question, do you notice most of the time when people have always been skeptical and they start examining the evidence, do most of them tend to change their mind that something's going on?
0: You know, I can't think, the only the only thing, I, there's something on the edge of that to some extent. Uh, I've known people who, I don't know, Ed May brought a number of people kicking and screaming into his, um, into writing, looking at the research and writing for his uh, Extrasensory Perception Support Skepticism in Science two-volume set, which is, to me, one of the best pieces of literature that he and Sonali Maruaha put together. The fact that he got people in different fields to actually look at research in parapsychology and say that there was something here, again, not necessarily agreeing on our conclusions, but agreeing that there was something here to look at is amazing to me.
1: When you say that Ed May, for example, and I'll link to who he is in the show notes, guys, he's fascinating. What conclusion? You said that he had a different conclusion?
0: Not necessarily, although I'll, I'll get to him in a second. It's just that what he was able to do was convince people who were either skeptical or even on the edge of the other side, of the disbelieving side, to really look at the research, which they had never done. They had made the assumption, like most of these other skeptics and, and so-called skeptics, pseudo-skeptics do, they they make an assumption that there's nothing to the research, that it's bad research, that it's not well controlled, that the statistics are wrong. They make those assumptions because they're told that that's what's going on. They don't have enough interest to actually look at that. So Ed was able to convince them. Now, Ed himself is a materialist. He comes at this from materialism's perspective. He does certainly believe in... A form of ESP, you know, anomalous cognition, as he calls it. He's starting to come around a little bit with psychokinesis because now he's understanding that there may be some other ways that PK could actually work. Uh, and as far as any evidence for life after death, he's fat. He's actually fascinated. He doesn't necessarily believe it, but he's fascinated by some of the evidence. Specifically, he seems to be very fascinated by the cases of, of children who remember previous lives, because. There ain't nothing that explains that. So except maybe fraud. There really isn't anything that the best of the cases, let's put it that way. And then he, he has expressed real interest in some of the, when I've gone over some of my cases and some of the other cases of apparitions that are out there and even hauntings, he's expressed some real interest in that. uh, Although he doesn't know how to, how we'd even consider doing research on somebody who doesn't have a body at that point, unless we can get him into a lab. So he, I think he's, he's not swayed in his belief, but he certainly is swayed in looking at what things are and that there are other possibilities. Uh, Ray Hyman, who I think is probably back to his position where none of this is real. I'm not really sure about that. But Ray Hyman was convinced by Chuck honorton An- years ago to spend some time. And he was, in fact, the most familiar with research in parapsychology. Uh, again, I don't know how he's dealing with this today, but He was convinced by Chuck Honerton to look at the Gonsfeld research. And after reviewing that, they did a joint paper where he did admit that there was a communications anomaly. He didn't want to use the word psi, but he did say there was a communications anomaly, which is fine. I mean, again, we can look at things as there's something here. We need to figure out what it is. And if you're approaching it from that perspective, that's great. If you're approaching from the side perspective, that's great. I mean, parapsychologists have often uncovered alternative explanations for for all sorts of things that the skeptics then glommed onto and suddenly used as their catch-alls for everything. Without without realizing, I've talked to some skeptics who would throw something at me for an apparition case and said, yeah, you know who came up with that? A parapsychologist.
1: It's interesting because, you know, you mentioned the cases of kids with past life memories. I mean, even Carl Sagan was impressed by that research and said that it, you know, he didn't draw any conclusions, but he said it was worthy of further investigations.
0: Right, he also said ESP was worthy of investigation.
2: I mean, there's certain cases in children with past lives that you can't deny, like or that you can't really easily explain away other than as you say, taking the leap and saying it's all fraud. For example, the Mar- is it Marty Martin case? And the James Leininger, of course, as well, which has been tackled.
0: Yeah, and the Leininger case right now is there is a, a paper it's gonna be published in the Journal of Scientific Exploration by a philosopher, uh, Michael Suddeth which he's gonna have some serious rebuttal, but he's um, he's taking a very uh, skeptical look at the line of your case. And I know Michael and he's, he's very honest, but he's coming at this from a philosophical perspective, not necessarily from the research perspective.
1: Hi guys, I'm jumping in to explain who is Dr. Jim Tucker. You might've heard me talk about him Quite a bit if you've listened to other podcasts. I write about him a lot in my book. And he is a child psychiatrist, very logical, traditional psychiatrist, who is also a professor at the University of Virginia. He now studies cases of kids with past life memories. And he also does this through the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia. He's really amazing. And you can also Google him to learn more about all of his cases of children with past life memories. And the James Leininger case is one of Dr. Jim Tucker's strongest cases of a kid who had past life memories. What would be the other viewpoint of the Leininger case? Because it seems
0: that was made up. The parts of it were made up.
1: Parts were made up.
0: Or that there was cryptomnesia that the kid was exposed to things that that you know were not acknowledged.
1: And what do you think of that?
0: Um, I'm going with. I have to go with Jim Tucker, who did a lot of work on this, who uh, you know says something different. So I'm waiting. I'm going to wait for the rebuttal from Tucker and from a couple of other folks as well. I, I don't know. I know James Leininger, the father, is going to have a rebuttal also. I the problem here is that. We have to go with the outside researchers looking at that, not the principal who is involved in that, because that raises the issue of, well, maybe he doesn't remember things, maybe there was some contamination. You need someone who can actually look and see what had happened from the outside as well.
1: Club Care is a charity organization founded by Emma Justice after the loss of her father, David Justice to glioblastoma. Care is dedicated to supporting children and families dealing with cancer. They strive to create joyful moments through meaningful projects impacting individual families as well as larger oncology communities. Funding for all projects is raised through philanthropic donations. Go to makingheadway.org backslash programs. For a complete list of programs and activities.
2: Yeah, which brings up, I suppose, the, the very important scientific principle of um, peer review and why it's so important.
0: Yeah, you know, peer review has its limits as well, uh, unfortunately, because just like replication has its limits, you know, there's. Uh, The idea of replication, first of all, in psychology, in the social sciences, replication, it doesn't work the same way it does in physics and chemistry and the physical sciences, because the principles involve human beings. And we make different decisions. We're under different emotional stresses at at different times. You're not using the same subjects. It's not the same physical structure that you're in, which can affect your psychology and performance and things like that. But I I remember... um, I worked for years, for several years, in the library at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, which is a Department of Energy-sponsored laboratory here in Berkeley. And one of the administrators had a PhD in in chemistry, and we got to know each other. He was actually interested in parapsychology. Uh, There were a few folks who were there who were interested in parapsychology. So we had lunch one day, and we were talking about the issue of replication, and he told me that when he was a grad student, one of his professors was a Nobel Prize-winning chemist. And one of their, ex- their lab experiments that they were doing for their studies was to replicate his experiment. And they had all the details, and they couldn't replicate it. It wasn't working. So when they told the guy, he, had, he watched them do it, and he said, no, no, you something on the order, I think it was either slower or faster, it's, you have to pour the chemicals this fast. So it had nothing to do with the contents, with the chemicals themselves, the components. It had to do with the speed at which one was pouring one chemical into another, which is not something you can actually document very well in any paper whatsoever. You know, what do you say? Uh, we poured it really fast.
2: Yeah, it's difficult.
1: Right. So even traditional science has problems with replication.
0: There, there are problems with replication, there are problems with the decline effect in not only in, in social science and human performance, but there's a decline effect that's been reported even in some areas of physical science as well, that over time, the effect doesn't work anymore.
2: So in terms of replication for the psi phenomena, one of the very common findings that we have is what could be attributable to the sheep-goat effect, and one that um, Chris French mentioned that um, he's done... Or attempted to do several replications along with um, folks like Richard Wiseman and others who have never been able to uh, successfully replicate the effects of psi phenomena. Why? Why do you think that is most likely? Because of
1: hi guys, I'm jumping in again because I think you need to know this definition of the sheep goat effect. I'm going to read this definition from the Parapsychological Association term first used by Gertrude Schmeidler to describe the relationship between acceptance of the possibility of extrasensory perception occurring under the given experimental conditions and the level of scoring actually achieved on that ESP test. Subjects who do not reject the possibility, who are called sheep, tend to score above chance those rejecting the possibility, who are called GOATs, they tend to score at or below chance.
0: Well, if Psy is real, then their attitude, you know, even though it's not expressed, and Richard's a pretty friendly guy, may be perceived by the, the people that they're working with, or that they have used their own side to select people who are not going to do well. There's a potential for using Psy to actually select your subjects, too. Or picking the you know, not starting it, it's kind of decision augmentation theory, as Ed May would put it, that you're using Psy to predict that you're gonna pick the subject that people start this experiment at a time where people are not gonna do well. It's gonna fit it's gonna fit your model.
2: I suppose the question would be how do we demonstrate that that is the cause of it?
0: We can't. Not at this point. But one thing about the sheep goat effect I find really fascinating is that if we're just if we're not talking about the experimenters themselves, we're talking about the experiments and general subjects. The sheep-goat effect is pretty consistent with participants. There's nothing that explains that. And forget about it being a psi effect. How in, the world can that, how in the world can people do better at a task that doesn't involve psi, it involves chance? How do they do better at chance type things when uh, they're believers versus worse than chance when they're disbelievers? How does that happen? Mathematically, physically, psychologically, that effect itself, the effect itself should be studied by psychologists.
1: Do you have any theories on it?
0: Without psi? No. <laughs> With psi, yes. <laughs> it, it, it's just one of those things that if we remove psi from the equation, we got to figure out what's causing that then, right? So if you're coming at this from a skeptical perspective and you see this effect that's, that seems to be consistent and psi doesn't exist as far as you're concerned, what is it? And why are you not researching it? Why is it not of interest to people?
2: That's the question, isn't it? Why haven't these the people who are more skeptical to this view? Why haven't they picked up on that effect and kind of aimed to undergo studies to to find out why?
0: Well, I think personally, um, I think that first of all, people are skeptical. If they're truly skeptical, it's not their role to do that, you know, um, unless they have an interest in the subject. But the very fact that the pseudo skeptics consistently Make noise about parapsychology and about these subjects in a negative way. They clearly have an interest. They have a self-interest in saying, in believing this doesn't exist, and stating that. They clearly have an interest, so they ought to try to figure out how the sheep go. To, I mean, I don't know why they don't do this. I've talked to some people about that, and all they said to me is, "Well, I don't have the time for that." It's like, okay, fine. Then don't. Then stop talking about it. You're spending a lot of time saying it doesn't exist. Tell us why it doesn't exist.
1: Yeah, that's what I've noticed with a lot of the skeptics as I started researching more is a lot of them say it's not true because it's not true. And they can't go further than that, even when you explain, you know, or they'll debunk, you know, or whatever it is, say, well, it's obviously this. And that was actually addressed in the study. And then they will say, well, yeah, I never read it, of course. But and that was I mean, what? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, even the you know the recent the relatively recent article in the Skeptical Inquirer by Reber and Alcock, where they state that psi what viol- ESP violates the laws of physics, but they start out by saying, well, you know, we we didn't read any of the research. Why would we? How do they know that it violates the laws of physics unless they read the research? And then there was another skeptic who who knew something about physics who then debunked their article, saying they don't know anything about physics. So. Here's why it doesn't. And and the guy who debunked it, who basically took potshots at their article, um, said he doesn't necessarily believe in ESP himself, but he was very clear about their arguments being false arguments.
1: The name of the article is Why Parapsychological Claims Cannot Be True by Arthur S. Reber and James E. Alcock. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I guess one thing. Because we're talking about the skeptics, but what about the most brilliant scientists? Because that's one thing I think that really bothered me, especially early on. It still confuses me because this research, from everything I have read and seen, is the most transformative thing I've ever seen. Like it's bigger than you know CERN and the what is it the Large Hydrogen, Hydrogen Collider.
0: Well, it, it's bigger. It, it's bigger than CERN for human beings. It's not bigger than CERN for science necessarily according to the way these, the, the folks approach things. And again, you have to look at personal interests. You know, a particle physicist may have no interest whatsoever in string theory. Look, let's look at the Big Bang Theory, the TV show. You know, Sheldon does not think that practical physics is anything at all. It's only theoretical physics, right? So uh, when I was at the lab years ago, at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, um, I did talk to some, some of the researchers as they came into the library. And, when I said I was involved in parapsychology, they, they, they would say that's not a science. And I learned to ask the question, is psychology a science? And if they were physicists, they said no. So at that point, it's like, okay, well, then I can't argue with you because parapsychology is effectively a social science, although we have implications for physical science as well. And then I could talk about, uh, at that level with them.
2: Yeah, I've never really understood the argument of something being science or not because surely, you know, the definition of science is, is the process of discovering the ways that nature works. Right. So whether it be physical laws of nature, psychological, I mean, the only question is, is it, you know, if you're undergoing a process to find something, it's definitely a science, but is it a legitimate science or is it a flawed science? And that should be, uh, I think, mainly the question at hand.
0: Well, and I think that's really what they meant is that uh, because psychology is based on principles that are variable from culture to culture, from individual to individual. You know, you can't get the replication rate that no, the physical sciences are, when I mean, that's what they're really talking about, not the process itself.
1: Oh, so I have another question, kind of switching the topic a little. What is, or is there just one or two standouts of the most mind blowing things you have seen in your research?
0: That's really tough for me because the things that I take in stride and I think are just simply cool, or interesting are people, I tell them to people, and they think, oh my God, that blows my mind. It's like, okay. Um, I I mean, I had a couple of personal experiences, I had a couple of -of out-of-body experiences, which were by location experiences as uh, when I was working at the American Society for Psychical Research. Those were a little bit eye-opening for me. I I think that probably one of my earlier cases, which is written up in Leslie Kane's book, Surviving Death, where uh, the, the young boy was communicating extensively with this apparition and we were able to track down the only living relative and confirm some of the family stories that were related to him and yet the other family members had also seen the apparition so it was not he was the only one. Uh, that was pretty mind-blowing especially when we asked does Lois the ghost have any questions for us and the questions directly related to a conversation we'd had in my car driving the 35, 40 minutes to Livermore, which meant that either my car was bugged or um, the kid was incredibly psychic. Although, why would you pick up on these uh, non-related uh, issues? I don't know. I didn't know. And the third possibility we found out is, well, how does Lois know this? And the kid looks over this empty chair, which is where Lois is supposedly sitting, and says, oh, she didn't trust you guys because of Ghostbusters, so she found your car and rode in your car all the way down to Livermore and listened into your conversation. So <laughs> I didn't know what to do with that. I mean, that was more mind-blowing than almost anything, honestly. It, you know, the idea of her bugging, the the mother or somebody bugging my car, there was no motive for that, literally no motive for that. Uh, the only inf- only way anybody knew about this case because I talked about it not because the family did, ever. No, they had no gain. They had literally no gain. In fact, um, in fact, I, I traded in kind. The uh, the mother in that case was an attorney and she did some legal work for me as a, as a thank you. <laughs> so in in many respects, she lost.
1: <laughs> so this boy was, is, is there a thought that it was his abilities or are there certain, do you think it's that ghosts, certain ghosts or certain discarnate consciousness are better able to communicate with, people.
0: It is, it seems to be the case that not everybody can perceive apparitions. And remember, some pe- people don't always see, they sometimes hear or feel or even smell. And that's probably the individual's own openness, uh, whether it's psychic ability or just being open to that kind of outside information. Is it, That's a big part of ESP. In, in fact, we're all probably a little bit psychic in terms of ESP. It's just that if you don't acknowledge it or kind of like block it consciously or unconsciously, Not going to come through the other piece of that seems to be that it may just be that the apparition focuses more on one individual once there is communication and that you know the intention from both sides openness total openness because the kid was really open the parents um, who saw the apparition about once a week didn't want to acknowledge it even to each other and the kid's grandmother also had seen the apparition didn't want to acknowledge it to anybody in the family so there's not really an openness there, whereas he, the first time he saw her, according to him, he acknowledged her, waved at her and started a, started a conversation. So there's probably a synergy happening at that point, at that level. Just like with mediums, the medium can be wide open, but, you know, of course, somebody has to come through and then there has to be this conversation.
1: And then one more. You mentioned you had a really amazing biolocation out of body experience. What was that story?
0: So um, I worked for my first job in parapsychology at the American Society for Psychical Research. Um, I was hired as part, a uh, half time, as the public information and media consultant. So I often did outreach to the public from the education department, but I also spent a lot of time. Um, just watching the research that Carlos Sosis and Donna McCormick were doing with Alex Tannis on out-of-body experience. And I spent a lot of time talking to Alex Tannis, who was an amazing psychic. He, you know, he had a huge impact on me in terms of my work with psychics over the years and mediums over the years. Uh, He was teaching parapsychology courses himself at the university of Southern Maine. Um, He came down to the ASPR once every couple of weeks uh, for a week at a time. And Every time he came down, the FBI, somebody from the FBI, New York Police Department, Boston PD, or some other police department would show up to consult with him on some case. And they were consistently there. I mean, it was not even, you know, we couldn't really talk about that at the time. Alex never talked about his cases because that was his agreement with the law enforcement agencies. But he had the fact that they were coming back to him again and again, clearly indicated that he was useful in some way. So, um... Alex and I were sitting and talking about, you know, I had never really had a psychic experience other than occasionally knowing who was on the phone. I'd had a couple of minor things happen to me in grad school, and I'd witnessed some PK as well. And he he just basically kiddingly said something on the order of stick with me, kid, you'll have plenty of experiences. So not too long after that, I woke up one morning having had a, a very intense dream. I was teaching adult ed courses in parapsychology at various schools, uh, adult ed schools in Westchester County. And uh, at one of them, which was about 50 miles away from where I lived uh, in Bedford, New York, I got to know a psychic who was attending my parapsychology class. In fact, a couple of psychics who were attending. And she did readings regularly. I got to know her really well. I got to know her, her two daughters. And um, the one was 18, one was 26. The one was 18 was living at home, visited her at her house a number of times. So I woke up from this this, mor- this one morning and I had this really intense dream that I had visited Danita and her daughter Linnea watching TV late at night in their house. And I knew, I mean, I knew that they, they were both late risers. In fact, Danita was usually up till three or four in the morning, Linnea too. She only did readings after I think two or three p.m. Uh, into the evening, uh, so you know, I thought I didn't think much of this this vivid dream. But a couple of days later, I got a call from Danita saying, "So were you ever going to call me?" And she said, "You were you had a dream about us." It's so like I said, uh, "Okay, how do you know you're a, okay? You're a psychic." She says, "No, no, you showed up here and said that I, I popped in <laughs> out of body, and they had a conversation with me." So all right, that then a couple of weeks later, I was at a. A bachelor party at a friend's apartment. It was kind of after we had gone to a restaurant and it was pretty boring. Just there was this stuff going on. It just was boring the hell out of me. And so I went into the kitchen, made myself a drink. And all of a sudden, I literally felt um, like I was in two places at once. I had a really weird um, sensation. And I, I could see myself in Danita's living room at the same time I was in Mike's kitchen. And Danita, in my visualization, Denita looked up and she, from reading a book and she said, OK, what's going on? And we have this conversation. And the last thing I said was, you got to take notes. Write this down. So I felt going back, I, I took some notes. I found some paper, took some notes down. That's through our conversation. The next day, I called Danita just to say hi. <laughs> and the first thing out of her mouth was, did you take notes? And we compared our notes and they were the same. That's the only, I mean, I've not had an out-of-body experience since then. I've not, not that I know of, not had that kind of experience. I had some PK experiences after that. I had a number of different psychic experiences. And every single time I told Alex about them, he said, you're going to have more. And I asked him why, why why is all this happening to me right now? And he said,
1: just to prove to you that it's real. And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. This week's question comes from Tara M. If psychics and mediums are genuine, why do they charge for their gifts? I thought genuine ones offered their gifts for free. Hey, Tara, thanks for that question. You know, a lot of people wonder that. I kind of thought that in the beginning, too. And, you know, it'd be really nice if they could just give readings for free. It'd be nice if all really needed services could be for free, such as medical care. If you're in the United States, it certainly is not. Education, unfortunately, often isn't. Well, at least higher education. And mental health therapy, not for free. Mediums just have to make money. They don't have a choice. How else are they going to survive or support their families? And mediums that have other jobs tend to not be as good. Again, that doesn't apply to everybody, but it's a skill just like any other skill. And they need to really hone it and work on it and work on it daily. So if they're not being paid, they really can only treat it as a hobby and can only apply a certain amount of time to it. But if they're paid, they can work on their mediumship full-time, and most tend to give much better readings when they can focus on it as their main career, just like all of us with our own careers. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to share that my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife is available now for sale. If you go to wtfjusthappened.net, you can see the link to buy it. I'll also have the link in the podcast show notes. I know many of you want to know how exactly did I come to change my mind about the afterlife? Well, this book is all about the first stages of my exploration into this afterlife evidence to where I'm at today. It starts with the awful part of when I lost my dad how as a science-minded atheist, I first began to explore if there was any possibility of an afterlife, and what and who I found most compelling. I also share some stuff that was not so compelling, such as a very clearly fake psychic medium reading and a pretty ridiculous seance. But that's balanced by some amazing peer-reviewed studies on mediums, medium readings, parapsychologists, and just... Whole bunch of what the fucks, including some really inexplicable personal things that happened to me, and some really incredible signs I got from my dad. Despite the topic, it's actually funny, mainly because I'm just like such an awkward person. And you also get to learn about all the amazing people and incredible characters I met along the way, as well as more about the research that helped change my mind. And some of the people you learn about have become some of my really good friends and mentors today. So go to WTFJustHappened.net and order it. If you've already read it, please rate and review on Amazon. I cannot tell you how helpful that is. And share with any friends who might be interested. Thank you all. I'm so excited to finally share the full details of this crazy exploration with all of you.
0: You ever wonder what mediums do with their free
1: time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ spiritual people, and our cis hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, <laughs> open up your mind. And start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. As I'm sure you've heard, the Supreme Court in the United States just overturned Roe v. Wade, which protects a woman's right to have an abortion if she chooses. Now it's illegal in some of our states. If anyone is looking to obtain an abortion and you live in a state where it's illegal, you can check the following sites. I suggest using a VPN, virtual private network, which hides your identity on your computer or phone. These are the sites, womenonwaves.org, womenonweb.org, aidaccess.org, plancpills.org wholewomanshealth.com abortionfunds.org and of course Planned Parenthood I link to all of them on our Instagram at wtf underscore just underscore happened underscore and they're saved in our stories these are also great places to donate and see if they need any help This is the end of part one of my conversation with Darren McEnany and Lloyd Arbach. To follow Darren, go to his website, seeking-i.com, which also links to all of his other channels. To follow Lloyd, he has many links and social media and places to buy his books. I'll link to them in the show notes, but you can also Google Lloyd with one L, Auerbach, A U E R, B A C H Be sure to listen to the rest of our conversation in our next episode, episode 14. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to WTFjusthappened.net. There you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened: A Science Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and evidence of an afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at wtfjusthappened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened.